doing? Oh, that's even better. Anyway, so back to what we were talking about. Uh, the idea of impressing yourself. And I know that that sounds crazy to even talk about because, like, you know, a pride is a problem the Bible talks about. We don't want to be walking around thinking we're the greatest. But occasionally, occasionally, you do something and you're like, wow, that's not too bad. And especially in terms of, like, our relationship with God, in terms of our morality, there's a lot of times where we do things that we're, we just wish we would have done something better. We wish we would have said something better. We wish we would have prayed more. We wish we would have given more. And then there's those just few, maybe rare occasions in which we do, and we take a little satisfaction with the fact that, ah, not too bad. Now, let me give you a couple small examples. You know, maybe it's something like with your spouse, where, where typically if your husband or your wife said or did this certain thing, it just, it, would, it, it drives you crazy, and you'd respond, you'd get upset, and you'd bring that other thing up that happened in the past that drives them crazy, and you kind of create that little bit of a, a vicious cycle, or maybe it's, uh, maybe it's a coworker just, you know, drives you bonkers with something, but, but or maybe it's driving, like the other day, uh, I was driving along, and somebody cut me off, and traffic and normally I am a big fan of the horn it's a part of the bo- the, the, the tools that that the car has and so you've got you've got to use the horn I mean why else is it there it's not there just to you know it's not there for polite reasons so normally I'd lay on the horn and let them know that you know hey you cut me off and I drive this little tiny car I mean people can't see me anyway but for whatever reason this one time I'm like oh it's no big deal and I'm feeling so proud of myself getting a lot of mileage out of this I'm thinking oh they're probably late for a doctor's appointment. It's no problem. I I bet you next time they'll wave all their fingers at me. It's totally fine. Everything's great. No problem at all. Now, this is true. The very next day, I'm driving somewhere and somebody cuts me off and I lay on the horn. Now, I happen to be on a phone call, hands-free, headphones in, happen to be on a phone call with somebody from church. (laughs) So there were limits to what I could and couldn't do in that situation. But they had heard me honk, and they're like, is everything okay? Or, you know, like, you know, is everything all right? Should I be praying for you right now, you know? But this one time I did okay, and this other time I didn't. It kind of raised for me this question, just broadly in life. Like, why is it that sometimes we do what we know we should do, and sometimes, maybe more often, we don't? Like, what is it, those moments, what's, what's in those moments that is, is giving us the ability to kind of rise above the circumstance and just do the right thing? And I, and I thought that's kind of a fascinating question to explore uh, as we talk about what we're doing uh, this morning. And I think at least one answer is, it's not that I've got life figured out, it's not that I've finally arrived and Patrick's kind of hit this, you know, spiritual plateau in which he can forgive the sins of other drivers, that's not the issue. The issue is probably something like this, that it is easy to be good in good circumstances. It's easy to be good in good circumstances. If I'm feeling good, if I'm not tired, if I'm not in a hurry, if everything's okay at home, it's easy to choose the right thing when everything's good. It's easy for most of us. Like we, we all kind of probably can relate to that idea, or easier maybe to be good is probably a better way to, to put it. Jesus even said, I mean, anybody can be loving if you're talking about loving people you like. Anybody can do that. That's not hard. Try loving people you don't like. That's where the real challenge comes. It's easy or easier to be good in good circumstances. So, so what is going on? What is going on with this? Why, why can't we do good more? Why can't we be better more often? And one, one solution would be for us to control our environment, right? Never be around annoying people, never have financial problems, never have marital stress, never have issues with the kids. That would be the issue. And that's what a lot of people try to do. They try to control their environment. And those tend to be very angry people because you cannot control your environment. 
So what we're going to do is we're going to talk about how there's a better way into this whole thing. We're going to dive into uh, uh, this new series that we're talking about. And, and I want to just introduce you to the topic. We've been working on, we plan these series out months ahead. And we try to think of like, you know, where, where is God speaking to us? Where is God leading the church? Kind of where, where are our heads at? And so we were, uh, Jordan and I were really drawn to the book of James. And we felt like, man, there's just some incredible practical wisdom inside the book of James. And we thought it would be fun to explore it. And then the more we explored it, the more excited we got about how powerful and impact, impactful this can be for the church. Uh, and so we started digging deep into the book of James, and uh, we realized that if we weren't careful, we were going to have like a 92-week series on the book of James, and you guys would all be sick of it after about six weeks. So what we're going to do is we're going to go like a real deep dive into the first half of the first chapter of the book of James. That's what we're going to explore, the first half of the first chapter of the book of James. So if you kind of want to be all over this sermon series and you want to be in and you want to know exactly what we're talking about, then you can just read the first chapter, first half of the first chapter of the book of James and you'll be there. You'll be with us. And it's pretty easy. It'll take you about four minutes. Uh, don't do it during my sermon because I got some things I want to tell you, but do it some other time. It'll, it'll be really, really fast. So we're going to jump right in to James 1, 1, and we're going to work our way back to this question that we are asking about how, how we can be good in all circumstances, not just in good circumstances. James chapter 1, verse 1. James chapter 1, verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. Greetings kind of innocuous, the stuff we kind of slide right over as we're reading our scripture. But I just want you to imagine something. Imagine you are a person who is a part of an incredible church. You just, you love church. You love everything about your church. You love everything that's going on. You love, you love the leaders of the church. You love the other people in the church. Everybody loves one another. I mean, these are, this is like the ideal, perfect church. Everybody's sharing with one another everything. Nobody has any needs in church because every time anybody hears of like the slightest little need, somebody goes and sells like a couch to help them, you know, pay their rent or whatever it is. I mean, everybody is doing everything. There, people are being drawn to this church in droves and you know you being a part of this group, you know that you are part of a movement. Like it's not just, you're not just going to church and sitting there every Sunday and, you know, shaking hands. You're part of something like there is something deep and amazing going on here. And we see uh, in Acts chapter 2, this church in Jerusalem that was that kind of church. I mean, it was just an incredible incredible setting. And we in the Church of Christ, we hold Acts chapter 2 up as this exemplar of what the church could and should be. It's this ideal, perfect situation. And James, this author that we're reading, is like the guy at church. And the thing he neglects to mention, although there's some people who disagree, is that he is likely Jesus' younger brother. Like writing. Can you imagine the guy at your church being related to Jesus? Imagine the stories. You know, he's preaching away and he's like, well, one time Jesus and I were kids and we, you know, whatever. You'd be like, wow, this is incredible. I mean, just imagine you had somebody like that as your leader. And then almost overnight, it all changes. Everything had been amazing. Everything had been beautiful. You'd loved everyone. Everything had been going along perfectly. And then the tides turned. And all of a sudden, the uh, political wind shifted, the, uh, the people who were opposed to you kind of gained power, and all of a sudden, you're kind of finding yourself um, driven out of where you were. And not just driven out, like you find yourself having to uproot your family in the middle of the night. You have to pull your kids out of school, out of their little league teams. You have to quit your job. You have to leave your house. All you can bring is just maybe a few things that you can grab on the way out, because if you don't, you're probably going to die, and your family's probably going to die by staying where you are. 
And here, just, just within maybe a few short weeks, a few short months, you're like out in some rural part of Israel, maybe staying in a, like a brother-in-law's garage just to try to avoid your family getting killed because all of a sudden the, the church has not been super popular or the Christians haven't been super popular, but now there's a mandate and it's okay to kill Christians. And you got to get out of there. And this whole thing is gone. And you're sitting there in the basement of your brother-in-law's house or wherever you are, out in rural Israel, you know, like whatever. And you're just thinking, what happened? I loved what we had. What, what is going on? What is this? What, what do I do with this now? And you're starting to think, and this is the tough part, because you're starting to realize that not only is life difficult, but the reason life is difficult is your faith in Christ. That's the thing that is causing the problems. And you can alleviate some of that pressure by just backing off the Jesus stuff a little bit. You don't have to go all the way, but just backing off. Not being so, like, let's just talk less about Jesus. Let's focus more on the old law, the old covenant. Let's, let's just get back to the way things were. That's all you have to do. You can relieve all the pressure. You can probably get your job back. You can re-enroll your kids in school. Your kid doesn't even have to miss his baseball game. It would be totally fine. All you have to, you're realizing that all your problems, your financial problems, your, your family problems, your, your job problems, they all relate back to this faith that you have in Christ. And you're sitting there in your sleeping bag and you're thinking, what am I going to do? My family, what am I going to do? And James, who was the guy at the church, is realizing this is going on with people who had been under his care. And he writes them a letter. And he says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes, to the people that were here, scattered. They, they understood that sense of being scattered from their homeland. Among the nations, he says, greetings. And then he, he says this. James 1, 2. Imagine, you're in the basement. And you're sitting there, you're thinking, man, if I just, if I just walk back this Christianity thing a little bit. And this is what James says. James 1, 2. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. James' message is essentially this. He wants you to know this. He wants that guy, that dad in the basement, who's wondering, what in the world do I do with my family? He wants them to know this. Things are not as they appear. All that pressure you're feeling... All that, that worry that you have, that anxiety you have, those choices that you feel like you've got before you, all that loss that you're experiencing, all that hardship and that difficulty and that suffering you're experiencing, it feels awful and it feels terrible. But I want you to know things are not as they appear. And, and, he, and he says this, this phrase for shock value. Consider it pure joy, my brethren, whenever you fall, whenever you face trials of many kinds. I mean, because on the face of it, that is a ridiculous statement. That's absolutely ridiculous. Any counselor, any psychologist in the world was, you don't go up to somebody who's hurt and suffering and put your arm around them and say, hey, don't worry about it. Consider it pure joy. It's great. I mean, you think I'm an optimist like James is out of his mind. This is correct. Consider it pure joy. Now, a lot of times when I hear sermons about this, they just, they just land here on the joy. But that's not really the point of what he's saying. He's not landing on the joy. He's trying to tell them things are not the, what they appear. And he's going to tell them what reality is, what's really going on. So he says, consider it pure joy. Um, and and I, I, I'm just imagining like James trying, maybe he's talking face to face with somebody. He's talking to that dad in the basement, wondering what the family's future looks like. And then this dad's just pouring his heart out to James. And James is like, well... Think of it this way, you know, imagine all this pain, all this trial, all this suffering, all this hardship. Imagine, now, 
with me here. Imagine if it was all joy. What if it was a cause for celebration? And if you were that dad, you'd probably want to punch him. You'd be like, what are you talking about? That doesn't, that doesn't even make sense. That doesn't make sense at all. That's ridiculous. Don't even, don't even talk like that. And James is saying your response to difficulty, one of your responses at least, shouldn't be hopelessness and despair and you know, throwing your hands up saying, I don't even know what to do. One of your responses at least should be joy because you understand there's something bigger at play here. James is essentially saying this. He's saying that it's short-sighted to be angry or despairing or to feel hopeless because there is a larger and more accurate reality to be seen in these circumstances. Then he goes on and he says, James, uh, verse 3, he goes, because, this is why he talks about this. I don't want to land on joy because that's not the point of this, uh, this passage. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. I think spelling bees are ridiculous. And the reason is, I am more of kind of a spell check guy, have my wife spell check it before I email it out, and even then there's some things that that get missed. But my kids develop this innate sense to spell, I guess from their mom, not from me, and they have been invited to multiple spelling bees. So our oldest uh, daughter, when she was in first grade, she's a little older than that now, when she was in first grade, she got to represent her class in like this conference spelling bee. Ooh, that's exciting. Like this is our first go as parents at something like this, right? You know, we did, they, they weren't in sports. They weren't in anything like that. So for us, I mean, it's our first child. It's our flagship child. And we need her to do well <laughs> to prove that everything's good. So we're like, all right. I mean, spelling, we got, we got this. Uh, all right. And so we're practicing night and day. We got the spelling sheet, you know, and we're going over every word. How do you spell? You know, and asking all these words. And then we practice all the words for her, uh, her, her grade range. And then you can go further and practice the words for the next grade range. Because if the spelling bee goes long and everybody's really good at spelling, they go up in the words until they get to these words that you and I don't even know how to pronounce, much less spell. And then that's, you know... So we're practicing constantly. I mean, we got that sheet constantly in the car, at home, everywhere, practicing for the spelling bee. I've never been to a spelling bee before. And those of you that have, you know, they're absolutely ridiculous. They're terrible things. First grade, right? I shouldn't say terrible because two of my kids have gone through them now. And some of you may have gone through them and you think that they're great, but let me talk you out of it afterward. So we finally get to the big day. And you have to block off a whole day for the spelling bee, a whole day. For the spelling bee to spell some words a whole day but the kids get out of school right but mom and dad have got to take time off they got to go you know be with their kids you know and of course it's our first child mom and dad are both there and we saw some of the other kids you know only mom shows up only dad shows up they've been there they've been through the cycle before they know how this goes so we show up and they gather everybody in a big room and they give everybody all these rules and they're like all right here are the rules no cheating you know all of all this different stuff they go over all these rules and somebody Somebody who was very, uh, very angry, like, like controlling person came up with these rules. Because there's all these rules that don't even make any sense. Some of them do, though. So they give all, all these rules, and then they separate everybody into groups, and you go into a room. And then they give you more rules in the room. And they say things like, turn off your cell phone. Okay, you know, you turn it to silent, right? Because whenever, you know, when you're on the airplane and they say, turn it off, you turn it to silent, right? Or you turn it to airplane mode or whatever. No, turn it off. Because if it even buzzes, it could be distracting to the spellers. Okay, Nazis, all right, let's turn it off, you know. All right, you know, I did, the stakes are high here. Remember, these are first graders, right? First graders. So we get in the room, and they go through a practice round. The kids got to stand up at this line. There is a panel of judges. 
there are like six people. I'm not making that up. There's one person who's like making sure you're given the right words. There's one person who is, uh, I don't know, just, uh, just, I don't know what they're doing. There's all, then there's this uh, person that's called the arbitrator. So if there's some conflict, like you think, you, oh, the original etymological, 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 you know, origin of that word is this, and you can argue with that person. Again, first grade, but there's an arbitrator. And then there is a spellmaster. And you think I'm making that up. That's what you call them, the spellmaster. Like this is some, you know, Lord of the Rings kind of thing, the spellmaster. And they're the ones in charge. And they're the ones the, delivering the words and, 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 you know, making sure everything's right. So first grade, parents are all back here. Kids are going up. And there's all, I mean, I'm tense. Like, I'm tense from the beginning. My kid hasn't even got on, but I'm, I'm tense. And, you know, they go through these kids and Taya goes up and they give her a word. She spells it right. Whew, okay, she's not on the first round. Like, you know, my heart, no joke, my heart's in my throat. My adrenaline, my heart rate was way up. I mean, it's a spelling bee because it's one strike and you're out, by the way. There's no, like, three strikes. There's no, I mean, spelling bees are like the original. You know how we talk about participation trophies and stuff like that? Spelling bees, there's nothing like that. It is hardcore. One strike and you're out, first grade. So we go through a couple rounds. Finally, you know, two or three rounds in, one kid gets out. Waterworks. The, he runs back to the parents. I mean, he's first grade. Poor kid, right? He's out. All that work. He's out. And I'm thinking, whew, at least that's not my kid. <laughs> my kid's not the dummy, you know? <laughs> Which is not true. I mean, all these kids, they're all spelling words more than I can spell, right? They're, they're all, like, they're all way more advanced than me. So Taya uh, makes it to, like, the fourth round. You know, there's three or four other kids. They're all crying, of course. And she goes up to the line, and, and the spellmaster is giving a word. And uh, Taya, and you hear this buzz in the room. Bzz, bzz. All eyes in the room go to this mom who did not turn her cell phone off. You know, and at, when I started, I was kind of like, well, that's a ridiculous rule. But in the moment, I'm like, we should probably stone this person. <laughs> old, old Testament law right here. Didn't turn her cell phone off, and of course, oh, I'm so, I'm, I feel like we should, arm guards, escort her out, that's it, her kid's out, whatever, right? Um, but her cell phone goes off, and everybody's distracted, so they kind of settle back in, and Taya's standing there before this panel of judges, all these teachers, this is pressure, this is like .01 seconds left, and you got a chance to win the game with a free throw, right? This is like, or maybe a three-pointer, I mean, it's not that easy, half-court shot, like, this is pressure, 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 and they give her the word again, they give the definition, put it in a sentence, all that, and Taya misspells it. That's it. She's out. That's done. All that work, all those months of preparation, she's done. And because spelling bees are awful and ridiculous, first grade, remember, all the kids are sitting on a row in chairs, and when you get out, you've got to scoot your chair back about two feet and sit behind the other kids. Right? This is the opposite of participation uh, trophy society. Like, in some ways, I think it's great, right? Right? And so I'm sitting there behind her, and she's, she doesn't cry. And I'm like, oh, I'm so proud. Like, I want to cry. I'm like, all that work, all that awfulness. And I'm like, this is horrible. Like, this is, I just want to reach out there, and I want to protect my little girl from the failure of disappointment and all that work. You know, you just want to be like, you guys are all mean. You're all ridiculous. You lady with the cell phone, you get out. You just want to, the system's rigged. You know, as a parent, you feel that way, right? You just want to protect your child from this hurt and this pain that they're feeling. But as I'm sitting back there, as I'm unable to get up to her, I'm like, a second thought comes into my mind. And I'm like, you know what? Maybe, maybe somewhere deep, 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 this is actually 
maybe this is actually good for her. And you as parents are like, what? <laughs> maybe it's good for her, right? As a parent, I want her to work hard when she's going to succeed, but I-, I want her to work hard when she's not going to succeed as well, right? I want her to be gracious in victory, but I want her to be gracious in defeat as well. I want her to learn how to do well, but I also want her to learn how to do poorly well. I want all these lessons for her, and I go, first grade, right? You guys are like, you're a little too hard on your first grade. I let her grow up a little bit. And I know we try to protect our kids, and it's important, and, and, and we, we put them in car seats and all that. You know, we hover, we do all that kind of fun stuff. But we know, if, we know that if we protect our children from all difficulty or hardship, that we're not really preparing them for life right? We know that. All hardship. I'm not saying everything. We don't throw our kids to the wolves. I remember when my girls were a little bit younger, not that long ago, they're like, hey, dad, can we ride around the block? And when I was a kid, right around the block, I mean, right around the town on my big wheel, there was just like, you didn't have to worry about stuff. Of course you did. We just didn't know about it, you know, right? Kids were, kids, things were happening, but you just didn't know about it. I just remember going all over the place. You're like, looking at my parents who are here, like, oh, terrible parents. I'm still alive, right? I'm still here. I'm still alive. But I was like, ooh, I was nervous letting my girls go around the block on their bikes. I don't know. I mean, maybe that's, a, I don't know. Something could happen to them. I, I want them to experience the freedom I had when I was a kid. So I was like, okay, all right, you can go. And I'm praying, please, Jesus, protect them. Right? You, know, make, you know, I'm telling her, just make sure you make left turns, left turns all the way, and you'll make it back. Uh, but you know what I did? I followed them. <laughs> like I'm in the CIA or something. Like, you know, Mama Bear, this is Eagle One. Uh, we have... Eyes on the target, you know. I followed them. They didn't know I was following them until just now when I said that to you guys. I've done that multiple times, actually. Hey, can we go down to this store? Sure you can. I will be about 200 yards behind you with binoculars, making sure everything's okay. I want them to experience freedom, and as a parent, we get to provide that in a safe environment, right? But, but listen, we, we know that if we protect our kids from all difficulty, that we're... We're protecting them from growth. We know that. When we protect them from everything hard, we're protecting them from growth. Listen, God is a good father. And he doesn't protect you from all hard things. Because God knows that if he protected you from everything, he would be keeping you from growing. And God is a good father. He's a better parent than we are. And sometimes we're like, oh, that doesn't make sense. Because we ask those questions, why? Hard things. Why, God? Why, God? Maybe God knows that the testing of our faith, the difficulty, the hardship, produces perseverance. This idea is all over the scripture. Paul talked about it. He said suffering produces hope. And so if God protected us from suffering, he would also be protecting us from hope. Uh, Peter said suffering reminded us that there's this bigger reality, this bigger future for us. And if God protected us from that, we would forget that God has something better in store for us. God doesn't protect us from difficulty because God is a good father. And this concept is not without analogy in the real world. You don't have to be a Christian to believe this. Um, you can, anybody that goes to a gym and works out, you're making your life more difficult for the purpose of making your life better. You're falsely putting difficult parameters on your life so that you can get better, that your heart can get better, that your endurance can get better. It's not without analogy in the real world. James reminds us that when we face trials, things are not as they appear because there may be a bigger reality going on. And he says this. 
He says this in the latter part of the verse 3 of James 1. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Joy isn't the point. Hardship isn't the point. This is what he says is the point. Well, actually, next verse. But this is what he says you need to have. I don't know uh, any of you that have ever run like a, a 5K. You know, not that far, not that difficult. 3.125 miles. It's, it's not hard, and you've done it, right? And uh, you've seen, have you ever seen those guys that are pretty excited at the beginning of the race? And for about the first 100 feet, they are like sprinting, flying down the, down the road or whatever. And then you get about 100 feet, and they're bent over, breathing heavily, you know, and all, you know, there's probably an old grandpa dragging an oxygen tank behind him, passing this person, because he understands the idea of pacing yourself and everything. This person had a lot of energy and excitement, but, but lacked endurance. It's the same reason the gym is full the first week of January and empty the last week of January. People are like, I'm going to get my life in shape, and ooh, this is hard. I'm going to go eat some donuts, you know, like, that's how people are, total lack of endurance. Have you ever met somebody who took a job and then did the job for a couple hours and then quit the job? They're like, well, I can't do this, right? You as parents, you know, sometimes you think it's funny when you have children who are teenagers and they're like, oh, I got a big day. I got to work four hours today. And you're like, four hours, man, I could do that in my sleep, you know, be easy. But here's the thing. Some of us can only be good for short spurts. We don't have any endurance. We don't have any stamina. Some of us can only love for about 100 feet, and after that, it gets hard. It gets difficult. Some of us can only be generous the first week of the month, because after that, it gets hard, and we want to spend money on other things, and it gets difficult. We don't have any perseverance. Some of us can only be kind when it's someone we like, because when it's someone we don't like, we don't have any perseverance. We don't have any stamina. We don't have any endurance. Some of us only can be gracious and kind, but we can only be gracious and kind for so long because we don't have any endurance. And this is what James says is important. These trials produce that endurance so that you can be kind and loving and generous and faithful even when it takes a long time, even when you don't understand. So that to that dad sitting in the basement of his brother-in-law's house wondering how his faith got him here, James is saying, endure hardship because it will produce perseverance. And that perseverance, there's something great that comes from that perseverance. And, and this is the thing. This is the key. Perseverance, endurance, whatever it is you want to call it, allows us to exhibit faith in all circumstances, not just in the good ones. Because it teaches us to behave faithfully even when circumstances aren't good. And that's, that's a tough lesson, right? That's a tough lesson. I wish... We could learn that lesson theoretically in a classroom without the actual real-world hardship. But God says this is where you learn. And this is one of those virtues, one of those qualities that we really struggle with. Because being good when it's easy isn't good enough for God. James chapter 1, verse 4 wraps up this passage by saying this, Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. And just imagine that, that dad sitting there wondering his life, his kids, his job, his finances. They're all gone. He has nothing. And James says, let perseverance through that hardship, let it do its work so that you may be mature and complete. And he, he knows what that dad's thinking. He knows what that mom's thinking so that you are not lacking anything. I don't have any money. doesn't matter. You got perseverance. You got faithfulness. You can wait 
in these moments that seem confusing and difficult and you don't understand why, why this is happening, that's completeness. Not having your financial house in order because you have a good job and everything seems safe and everything seems great. Completeness is being able to be faithful to God in difficult circumstances. Let me wrap this up just real quickly uh, by reminding you of the three things that I've been trying to say this morning all through this sermon. Just real quickly, we'll run through these. Number one, our comfort is not nearly as important to God as our growth. I wish that weren't true, right? I wish God was like, I just want you to be comfortable. Luxury, yacht, big house, that's what I want for you. And God says, no, what's more, I want, I'll comfort you. God is a God of comfort, but what's more important to me is your growth. And sometimes he will allow discomfort in order to produce growth. Secondly, hardship grows us in ways that cannot be experienced without it. Just cannot be experienced without it. Got it. Don't worry. I listened to Patrick's sermon. I got it. No hardship for me. I'll persevere. No problem. And God says, I'm sorry. This is a lesson that can't be learned outside of difficulty and hardship. And then finally, perseverance is the ability to not let difficulty dictate our faith. To not let difficulty dictate our faith. Meaning that we, are, we find ourselves in circumstances that are hard and we want to make choices that compromise our faith and our trust in God or our goodness or our behavior. And perseverance is the ability to not let those circumstances, those hard circumstances, dictate our faith. I'm going to turn uh, things over to, to Leon to wrap us up. And a lot of our prayer requests are hard things that we're going through. And so my challenge is not just that you pray for God to take away those things. Isn't that, our, isn't that our general prayer? God, remove this hardship. But God says this hardship is for a purpose. And so maybe our prayer should be, God, help me learn from what I'm going through. Leon?